We come now, brethren, to the preaching of God's Word, and I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to the book of Romans and the 10th chapter, the book of Romans, as we continue our verse-by-verse series through the book of Romans. We'll be looking at Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 4 this morning. Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. I invite you to read along with me silently as I read aloud. Here Paul writes, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, for his kinsmen, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they do not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your mercy and grace this morning, for this opportunity to gather in Christ's name on this day to worship you in spirit and in truth. And we would ask now as we come to the preaching of your word for the Holy Spirit's ministry upon us, that he would be our guide and our teacher, that he would open our eyes to the beauties of your word and grant us understanding of it and help us to understand it in such a way that our lives are transformed, our thinking is changed, and we are eager to live lives of trust and obedience to you. For we ask these things this morning in Jesus' blessed name. Amen. As Christians, we should not shy away from the doctrine of God's sovereignty. For the fact that God has decreed all things that come to pass, and that he exercises control over everything that unfolds, should drive us to God and not away from God. For if we understand that God is a good God and that his sovereign rule is merely an extension of his goodness to us, we won't find fault with his role over us. And if we understand that his sovereignty also extends to all that we do under his spirit's control, we'll be eager to obey him, knowing that he often uses our obedience as a means of fulfilling his purposes in the world today. And certainly this is the way the Apostle Paul viewed and understood the sovereignty of God as it related to the state of his kinsmen according to the flesh and his burden for them. For Paul understood that God was totally sovereign over Israel's salvation and that ultimately the determination of who would be saved by grace was the result of God's prerogative alone. That's what Paul believed. And yet, while Paul submitted entirely to God's right to do as he pleases in salvation, he did not fail to open his heart and to bow his knees in prayer for the results that he desired to see among his own people. For Paul did not perceive of God's sovereignty as a hindrance to seeing his kinsmen saved, or as a reason to discontinue praying for them. But rather, Paul saw the sovereignty of God as a reason to be confident that God would save some, 
and that God would answer sincere prayers for the salvation of his own people, just as God had promised he would do in his word. Why do I start this morning by emphasizing this point in particular? Well, I emphasize this this morning in particular because some have openly criticized the doctrine of God's sovereignty as I have presented it in recent weeks as being opposed to the work of evangelism and as being a discouragement to prayer for the salvation of the lost. In fact, it's common to hear the claim from those who oppose the doctrine of God's sovereignty that we who believe and stress in God's sovereignty do not have a heart for the lost. Have you heard that before? That we don't have a heart for the lost, that we don't pray for the lost as we should because we believe that the matter of salvation has already been settled. And so why pray if prayer is not needed at all? And yet this claim that the doctrine of God's sovereignty somehow hardens our hearts towards men and somehow weakens our prayers for the salvation of the lost simply is not true. It is not true, but rather the effects of this doctrine, the doctrine of God's sovereignty, when rightly understood, are exactly the opposite. And Paul's own words here in verse 1 of Romans chapter 10 prove this. Or notice that Paul does not write here, in view of what I taught in Romans 9, I see no reason to be burdened for the salvation of my kinsmen because that's God's concern and not mine. Nor does Paul say here, I will no longer pray for their salvation, since I'm convinced that a belief in God's sovereignty eliminates the need for prayer. But rather, Paul reemphasized here in verse 1 of chapter 10 that he was deeply committed to both. For he was burdened for his kinsmen, and he was praying fervently that they would be saved. And both of these responses from Paul were created in him through the powerful working of the Holy Spirit. For the Spirit works within us to give us a concern for the glory of God and salvation. And the Spirit works within us to give us a compassion for those who are lost and it is out of this concern and compassion that we are moved by the Spirit to pray. In fact, if we are sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit, it will be impossible for us not to pray as we encounter the sad condition of those who are lost and in need of sovereign grace. Furthermore, we should be confident today that when we pray for the lost, and hear this carefully, when we pray for the lost, as those who believe in the sovereignty of God, our prayers are not in vain. Our prayers are not in vain, for our prayers will accomplish the purposes that God intends for them. And oftentimes, God in His goodness is pleased to show us how our prayers are used in His providential dealings with others to convict them of sin and to draw them to Jesus Christ. In fact, all of us who are believers today are indebted in some way to the prayers of others who prayed for our salvation and whose prayers God was pleased to answer.
Or maybe you are not a believer today and you give very little thought to the lost state of your soul. And yet there is someone in your life who is praying for you even now. There is someone in your life who is praying for your salvation. Oh, what a gift of God it is this morning to have someone who cares enough about your eternal soul to pray for you. What a gift it is. And if they are praying for you, how can you turn away from their prayers? How can you turn away from their compassion for you without considering what it is that they want you to know, without considering what it is that they want you to experience through Jesus Christ? For what they are seeking for you is true peace with God. And if you are praying fervently for the salvation of the lost, may Paul's words here in verse 1 be an encouragement to you not to quit praying for them no matter how long it takes or how many discouragements you have to face. For it would have been easy for Paul, humanly speaking, to give up praying for his kinsmen, considering their hardness to the gospel and considering the harsh way that they had treated and responded to Paul. But Paul made it a point here to remind his Christian brethren. Notice he begins verse 1 with the word brothers, to remind his brothers in the faith of his own example, so that they would not leave off their duty to pray for the lost either. So Paul's purpose here at the beginning of our sermon text is to draw our attention to the fact that his confidence in God's sovereignty complemented his desire and prayers for his kinsmen rather than conflicted with it. Rather than conflicted with it. We need to understand this morning that a firm belief in God's sovereignty and a sincere commitment to prayer are not only compatible, but they are absolutely important and necessary to our faith. And yet, why did Paul believe that heartfelt, fervent prayer was needed in order for his kinsmen to be saved. Well, Paul tells us why here in verses 2 and 3 of Romans chapter 10. And that is because Paul's kinsmen were placing their confidence in three things other than Jesus Christ. They needed prayer because they were placing their confidence in three things other than Jesus Christ. And needless to say, when an individual places their confidence in the wrong thing, they can easily be caught up in error and in ignorance. And what were Paul's kinsmen placing their confidence in? Well, Paul tells us first here in verse 2 of this chapter that they were deeply impressed by, they were trusting in their own religious zeal. They were trusting in their own religious zeal. Notice what Paul says here, beginning in verse 2. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. And zeal, or great energy, or enthusiasm, can be a good thing, 
if its object is the truth of God as that truth is revealed in the word of God. However, merely possessing zeal for one's belief is not a guarantee that one's confidence is in the right place. And of course, Paul knew this from personal experience, didn't he? I want you to think about it for a moment. For no one was seemingly more zealous for God than Paul, also known as Saul, was prior to his conversion to Christ. No one seemed more zealous. For you recall that Saul had been so seemingly zealous for God that he had received letters from the high priest giving him permission to arrest Christians and take them to Jerusalem as prisoners. And in the process of carrying out his orders, Saul persecuted Christians and he ransacked their churches. In fact, Paul speaks with great sadness, with great regret in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 13 of how he persecuted the church of God violently. That was his word, violently. And how he endeavored to destroy God's church. However, rather than conquering the church of God, Christ conquered Paul. Christ conquered Saul on the road to Damascus. And Christ made Saul a chosen instrument for his own use. And that was to be a witness before kings and Gentiles and the children of Israel, according to Acts chapter 9 and verse 13. And so Paul was an example of a man who once viewed himself as being zealous for God. Paul also believed that opposing the work of the gospel was a noble cause at one time, a right cause to pursue. But Paul realized that the zeal that he previously possessed was not motivated by a sincere love for Christ, but by a lack of knowledge as to who Christ is and what the message of the gospel is all about. And my friend, maybe you are like Paul this morning before his conversion to Jesus Christ. Maybe you think that your energy and your enthusiasm for your religious beliefs, whatever they may be, will be enough to impress God and to convince God that you are devoted to him. But you fail to see this morning that your zeal means nothing if it is not focused on what God has done through Jesus Christ. In fact, your religious zeal can actually be harmful to you and harmful to others in that it can make you hostile to the truth and lead you to make unwise decisions. Therefore, I appeal to you this morning not to allow your zeal to lead you astray. Not to allow your misguided zeal to lead you into thinking that you deserve God's acceptance simply because you put forth some effort at being religious or because you devote more effort toward religious activities than others do. Because what determines your acceptance by God is not what you do. What determines your acceptance with God is not determined by how much effort, how much enthusiasm you put into it, but what Christ has done. 
and whether you are relying solely upon what he did in his zeal for the glory of God and for the salvation of those who trust in him. Now, does this mean that there's no place for zeal in our lives today? No, it doesn't mean that because there is a place for zeal in the lives of those who are already Christians. There is a place for zeal in the lives of those who are already Christians. In fact, the church of Jesus Christ needs more zealous Christians today. More Christians with spiritual energy and enthusiasm for the things of God in Christ. However, the kind of zeal that we need is not that self-centered, boastful, oftentimes turbulent zeal that our flesh produces or that Paul's unsaved kinsmen had, but we need that divine zeal that the Holy Spirit produces within us, which is based upon a right knowledge of Christ and which moves our affections and actions towards Christ. For as Jonathan Edwards once wrote, true Christian zeal is rooted in a fervent love for Jesus Christ which compels us to act selflessly and diligently for the cause of Christ. Or as Thomas Watson once wrote, true Christian zeal is always asking one question, what shall I render to the Lord Jesus? What shall I render to the Lord Jesus for the grace and the goodness that he has given to me? And needless to say, this was not the kind of zeal that Paul's unsaved kinsmen possessed, for their zeal was rooted in unrighteousness. Their zeal was rooted in spiritual ignorance, which is why Paul labored with his heart and labored with his prayers for their salvation. Then not only were Paul's unsaved kinsmen placing their confidence in their own misguided zeal, but they were also confident that they could establish their own righteousness before God. They were confident that they could establish their own righteousness before God. Notice what Paul states here in verse 3 of Romans 10. That they were ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. And here in this verse, we learn what Paul's kinsmen were ignorant of and how their ignorance set them off on the wrong path. And, and what were they ignorant of? Notice that Paul states here in verse 3 that they were ignorant of the righteousness of God. They were ignorant of the righteousness of God. And this does not mean, let's talk about what this does not mean first. This does not mean that they were ignorant of the fact that God is a righteous being. Because Paul's kinsmen as Israelites were not ignorant of the attributes of God. They were not ignorant of God's righteous character or nature. Rather, Paul's unsaved kinsmen were ignorant of God's provision of righteousness. God's provision of righteousness. That righteousness that God gives, which is legally imputed to all who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. For your consider, you'll remember our consideration of Romans chapter 9 and verse 30 last Sunday. 
where we stated that there is a righteousness of God that is not from the law or through law keeping, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And this righteousness, which is by faith, is the only righteousness that God will accept, given that it is the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. And when it came to receiving this righteousness, the Gentiles, you'll remember, by the grace of God, had embraced it eagerly. They wanted this righteousness. But the Israelites, Paul's kinsmen after the flesh, chose not to pursue it. And Paul reveals to us in here in verse 3 of Romans chapter 10 that their refusal to pursue it was largely based upon ignorance. And not ignorance as to the facts that there is a righteousness, but ignorant in that they refuse to yield to the truth. Ignorance that was reflected in their own agenda. What was their agenda? Well, Paul informs us here in the middle of verse 3. Notice the middle of verse 3. What their whole agenda was, what their whole goal was. And that was to seek and to establish their own righteousness. They wanted a righteousness that was tailored to them. They wanted a righteousness that was in line with their ambitions. They wanted a righteousness that they could control. They wanted a righteousness that they could confer upon themselves. And of course, this should not surprise us at all. Because this is what all lost men do. If you think about it, lost men seek to set up their own standards of righteousness based upon their own sinful agendas. They try to hide their own spiritual nakedness with garments of their own making, which is what Adam and Eve attempted to do in the garden, you'll recall. They refuse to see what they truly need in righteousness that only God can give and that only God can accept and they do this again and again and again. And it keeps them from the gospel. In fact, I wonder this morning if this describes you. As you are seated here this morning under the preaching of God's word. Are you rightly convinced that God is a righteous God, but you're not willing to accept his demands? That you be found righteous in his righteousness? Are you seeking to establish your own righteousness, even though God makes it absolutely clear in Isaiah 64 and verse 6 that all of your deeds are as filthy rags? Are you trying to conceal your own unrighteousness with the claim that you are righteous when God has already declared that you are not? If you are acting today in any of these ways, then like Paul's kinsman after the flesh, you are not submitting to the righteousness of God, as Paul states here at the end of verse 3. What's worse? What's worse? You are refusing and rejecting the truth, although it has been plainly revealed and offered to you sincerely through the Lord Jesus Christ today. Oh, do not refuse a righteous standing with God today because you will not bow the knee to Jesus Christ. 
However, if you are convinced this morning that your own self-righteousness has deceived you and that you are in need of a righteousness that only God supplies, then there's wonderful news to be heard. There's wonderful news to be found in Jesus Christ for you. For Paul declares here in verse 4 of Romans chapter 10 that Christ is the end of the law or righteousness to those who believe. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to those who believe. Now, what does this verse mean? It's an interesting verse. It's a powerful verse. What does it really mean? Let's break it down carefully so that we are absolutely certain that we understand it. For if we understand this verse, Romans 10, 4, we will find life for sinners and true joy for believers. That's a tall order, but the word of God is up to the challenge. Romans 10 and verse 4. Let's consider first how this particular verse offers life for sinners. Life for sinners. And it offers true spiritual life because it reveals that through Jesus Christ, there is an end to condemnation and guilt that we once experienced under the law. There is an end to the condemnation and guilt that one once experienced under the law. Because before we come to Jesus Christ, the law of God with its demand for absolute perfection bears down upon us. The law of God loudly announces its righteous judgment against us for no man apart from Jesus Christ can live under the law of God guiltless. For if we have violated any part of God's law, then we have violated the whole of God's law and we are deserving of condemnation. Living under the law, living outside of Jesus Christ is also living a life that is devoid of true peace and happiness. For once our consciences have been awakened to the law of God, we cannot, we cannot ignore its voice. Once the law of God opens your mind, tells you that you're a sinner, you cannot ignore its voice, and you cannot silence its voice either, regardless of what you try to do, regardless of how often you try to do it. It is a constant witness. The law of God is a constant witness that we've fallen short of the glory of God. It is a constant reminder that we have unfinished business with God as those who will one day give an account to him. Furthermore, the law of God in and of itself has no power to give us life, no, no power to give us strength. If you're thinking that by keeping the law of God, you will be renewed, if you're thinking that by keeping the law of God, you will be strong in the sight of God, then you're wrong. Rather, our disobedience to the law of God zaps us of our strength. It takes our strength. It takes our life from us, and it never returns it. In fact, this is why it is utterly foolish to seek to be righteous, to seek to be justified by the law, because it cannot give us the kind of standing, it cannot give us the kind of relationship with God that we need. 
And so this verse, Romans 10.4, is not a call to pursue the law, but a call to put an end to any hope that we might be harboring that we can be made right by the law. Then more positively, this verse, verse 4 of Romans 10, reveals that Christ puts an end to our misery and grief under the law. Christ puts an end to our misery and grief under the law, given what he has already accomplished for his people who will later come to him by faith. For when Jesus lived a perfect life on this earth, he fulfilled the demands of the law for a perfect life. And when Jesus willingly died on the cross for sin, he fulfilled the demands that the law made for justice against sin. In addition, when Jesus Christ gloriously rose from the grave, he opened the way for men and women to be freed from the curse of the law by believing in him, by believing in his righteousness, rather than failing to gain it on their own. And therefore, Jesus Christ does for believing men. He does for believing women today what the law of God could not do, what the law of God could never do. He gives life. He gives spiritual strength. He declares us righteous before God the Father. He clothes us with a spiritual garment of his own righteousness, which presents us as spotless and pure and clean. Furthermore, Jesus silences the voice of the law against us. Jesus silences the voice of the law against us so that what we hear now is not the thunder of the law, but what we hear now are sweet words, sweet words of comfort and spiritual hope and spiritual security. We hear words like Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, which we've considered already. Words like this. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Jesus Christ from the law of sin and death. I ask you this morning... Has the Holy Spirit spoken these words of comfort to you? Note the question very carefully. Not have you heard me say these words this morning. Not have you heard some other preacher declare these words in your hearing. But have you heard the Holy Spirit speak these words of comfort to you? Do you have the inward witness of the Holy Spirit that these words, that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, to you as your promise. If he has, if the Spirit has spoken to them, spoken them to you, then you'll know it. You'll know it. And you'll find peace and comfort through it. I pray that he has. And if not yet, if not yet, may this day be the day that you find true freedom in Jesus Christ through believing. If you're not a Christian today, know this. There are people in this room, including me, 
We're praying fervently for you. That the sovereign spirit of God would work in your heart. Would open your heart like he opened the heart of Lydia to the preaching of the Apostle Paul. And would enable you to hear for the very first time with spiritual ears. The truth of what Jesus Christ does through the work of the spirit. And I pray that you'd be drawn to Christ this morning. And if you're a believer here this morning, I pray you'll be encouraged by these words from the Apostle Paul. God's sovereignty is a great comfort to you. God's sovereignty gives you a reason to be prayerful. God's sovereignty gives you a reason to be burdened. God's sovereignty gives you a reason to be secure, to be confident in all that you have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise the name of Jesus Christ this morning. All hail the power of, of Jesus' name, who is able to do these things for God's glory, for his own honor, and for our good. Let's pray. God and Father, we thank you so much for your word today, and we would ask now for the work of your sovereign spirit in our lives now this text has been opened and now that it's been explained, may you as the Sovereign Spirit apply it as only you can to bring new life, to encourage and to edify your church, to bring glory to the Father. For we ask these things in Jesus' name.